0: And our scripture reading will be Exodus chapter 12, verses 1 through 51. That is not a typo. <laughs> you, you had promised to come and gather for the reading of God's word. Well, we are, we're going to we'll test you today. We will be reading all of chapter, Exodus chapter 12, all 51 verses, and then we will read Matthew chapter 26, verses 17 through 30. And as a way of introduction to this, let me just say we have been kind of going through the Baptist uh, Catechism as a guide for our uh, sermons for this year, pretty much since January. And we're hitting a section here about the means of grace. And so several weeks ago, we talked about the ordinary means of God's grace. That is his word. Um, that is the ordinance or sacrament of baptism, which um, I dealt with a couple of weeks ago. And today, we're going to do uh, uh, kind of a mini-series. We'll call this a mini-series. We'll be doing the Lord's Supper today and, Lord willing, next week and the week after that. So for the next three weeks, we're really going to dive in to the ordinary means of grace, the ordinance or sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Today, we're going to be covering the basics of that today. Uh, As well, too. I feel like it's just redundant. Today, we're going to cover it today. The Department of Redundancy Department. <laughs> so, with uh, that introduction, I would like for us to read the Old Testament backdrop to the Lord's Supper, and then we will read the New Testament, uh, uh, the New Testament uh, sacrament of the Lord's Supper, uh, right on the heels of this. So, Exodus chapter twelve, beginning in verse one. Can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of the month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, both male and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations, as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days, but what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. And you shall observe the Feast of Unleavened Bread, for on this day I brought your host out of the land of Egypt, Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month from the 14th day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. For seven days, no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land. You shall eat nothing leavened in your dwelling places. You shall eat unleavened bread. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, go and select lambs for yourselves according to the clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this right as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, What do you mean by this service? You shall say it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses and the people bowed their heads and worshiped. Then the people of Israel went and did so as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. So they did at midnight. Go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord, as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds, as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, we shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramesses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them, A night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So, this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is a statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it, but every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. No foreigner or hired worker may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside of the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. If a stranger shall sojourn with you and keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. All the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. And now Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 26, verses 17 through 30. Now, on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at the table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, Is it I, Lord? And he answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? And he said to him, You have said so. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to his disciples, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Brothers and sisters, this is the reading of God's word. And we say, thanks be to God. Indeed, God, thank you for your word. And we pray now as in these next few moments, having read about the old covenant feast of Passover and unleavened bread and how the Lord has transformed that in what we call the Lord's Supper may us in the next few moments as we reflect on this that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear that you would make the meditation of our hearts be pleasing to you O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And we pray this in Christ's mighty name. Amen. So as I said, this is the first of three teachings on the Lord's Supper. As I am prone to do sometimes, I want to cram so much in, and I finally just have to pull the cord on the chute and bail out and say, this is not just one sermon, it's two. Or in this case, it's three. So today I want to look... At the basics of the Lord's Supper, next week, Lord willing, we're going to ask one particular question about the Lord's Supper, and that is Christ's presence in the Lord's Supper. How is he present in the Lord's Supper? And then in the following week, we'll look at some cautions and consequences, cautions in taking it and consequences in taking it wrongly in a couple of weeks. So today, we're going to be looking at some of the basics of the Lord's Supper. And again, to recap, the Lord's Supper is one of the two means of grace, one of the two sacraments or ordinances that God has given us to believers under the new covenant. The first one is baptism, and the second is the Lord's Supper. Now, let me begin with giving you a couple of the names for the Lord's Supper. I tend to call it the Lord's Supper, but there are other names for it that you, you know, depending on the church tradition, there's an emphasis for each one. Um, but just kind of give you a survey of these. The first one is Eucharist. How many of you grew up in a tradition where you referred to it as the Eucharist? Probably a Catholic tradition or, you know, okay. Um, the Eucharist, which is just the Greek word for um, uh, to give thanks or he gave thanks. Which comes right from the passage that we just read. And then also 1 Corinthians chapter 11, when the Apostle Paul talks about the institution of the Lord's Supper, the, the words of institution. and says, and he gave thanks. Jesus gave thanks for them. That's the idea behind this one. The Eucharist. The second one is communion. How many of you grew up in a church tradition where communion was the, the term that you uh, heard the most? That's what I grew up in as well. And the communion here is referring to uh, fellowship or participation. This, this comes from uh, the Greek word koinonia. You've heard me mention this one before. Koinonia means to have in common or to have fellowship with one another, the participation with one another. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, in referencing the the Lord's Supper, he says, The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion or participation in, in the ESV, but in the King James, is is it not communion in the blood of Christ? We'll get into that some more in the later teaching, but this is where you get the word communion because you're participating in Christ. You are uniting with Christ Christ. In this meal that he's given us. The third one is the breaking of bread. You see this often in the the book of Acts. There's uh, Acts chapter 2 verse 42. At the end of Peter's sermon when Luke is giving a summary of what the spirit-filled community of Christ looks like. And it says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Many believe that this, the breaking of bread, is a reference to the breaking of bread. You can see this elsewhere later in Acts uh, chapter 20. It says that as they gathered together on the first day of the week and they broke bread. We'll get to that here in a moment. And then the other one is the Lord's Supper. And this also has some scriptural background, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and chapter 11. Uh, or the Lord's table, the Lord's supper or the Lord's table or the cup of the Lord or the table of the Lord. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 20, it says, and when you come together, it is he's critiquing the way that they're doing that. And we'll look at that later. But he says, when you come together, you're not taking the Lord's supper. And that's where we the use, uses the language of the Lord's supper because they were doing it wrongly. He's saying you're not doing it right. But he uses the term the Lord's supper. It's very significant, this idea of supper. This is the one I, I tend to prefer, and this is the one that's in like the, the Westminster Confession of Faith and the, the London Baptist Confession of Faith. They use the, the language of the Lord's Supper. And I think that that's a very helpful one because of the importance of meals as a, as a sign of the fellowship and communion with other people and, and a covenantal relationship. There's a story about Isaac and Abimelech where he shows up and then Isaac's like, what are you doing here? You're kind of my enemy. And he's like, no, no, no. I'm, I'm making a truce with you. I'm making a covenant with you. And then it says, and they sat down and had a meal. Kind of a way to, to solidify that, that covenant there. Similarly, in Leviticus, if you we're here, and we went through our series in Leviticus. We looked at the five major offerings that the Lord had given to the people of Israel when they were to come before His presence around the tabernacle. There was the the burnt offering, the grain offering, the peace offering, the sin offering, and the guilt offering. The the third one there, the peace offering, or sometimes it's referred to as the fellowship offering. They were to bring the. The fat, the animal, and then the fatted portions would be burned and consumed. And that was kind of like the Lord's share. And then the rest they would roast and they got to eat. So it was kind of like a a sharing of the meal between Yahweh, the Lord, and then uh, theirs. This came after the burnt offering and the grain offering. Then it was kind of like a, a peace offering. It was a way to say, we have peace with one another now. But probably the one that we most associate with the covenantal meal is the one that we read about in Exodus chapter 12, which is the Passover. It was a meal to mark this covenant relationship between God and his people, a covenant relationship that was established on this great act of grace and redemption by the Lord in delivering his people out of their bondage of slavery. So it's this backdrop that we come to Matthew chapter 26 and we see what Jesus is doing here with his disciples. He is celebrating this Passover and the feast, that week-long feast that came after it, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, with his disciples. And it's in the middle of this meal where they would, Have bread and they would have wine, and they would have the the lamb that would be roasted. And it says that Jesus took that bread, and he took that wine, and he ordained a meal for his followers to have. Whereas the Passover was kind of this great act of redemption by God in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, and the Passover was the meal that kind of commemorated that, Jesus is saying this in the New Covenant... I likewise am going to give you a meal by which to celebrate even in the middle of it. And what's interesting, and you've heard me mention this before about the Passover, is it was initiated that night in the middle of it. It wasn't like they kind of ran out of there and they go, a year later they go, you know, let's kind of commemorate that great act of deliverance. And they came up with it. Though the Lord gave them instructions that night. Similarly, the Lord Jesus... On the night he was betrayed, he marks it with a meal. Not in kind of retrospect or a year later thinking back on it. No, he marks it at that moment. So a couple of questions here. I would like to to ask some who, whom, when, where, how, and why questions related to this. But we want to focus mostly on, on the why or the meaning of it. So who and whom. Who is to do it? Well, first of all, what is it? Well, this is an ordinance. It is a supper by the Lord Jesus instituted by him the same night wherein he was betrayed, and it is to be observed in his churches until the end of the world. That's what it is. So, who, who is it that is to administer it, and who is it that can receive it? Well, strictly speaking, it doesn't say anywhere in the scriptures that on the specific persons that are to administer the Lord's Supper. There's no explicit teaching on it. Um, Many say we're just kind of left to our own wisdom to decide in which. But a lot of uh, church traditions, including uh, the the confessional statement that we follow, would say that this would be typically reserved for the elders or leaders of a church. They would be the ones in charge of administering it. So whoever is the pastor or ordinary leader would be the ones who would be officiating over this the service. That's the by whom question. The more important question is who can receive it? Who can receive the Lord's Supper? As our catechism question says, who are the propter subjects of this ordinance? The answer is they who have been baptized upon profession of their faith in Jesus Christ and repentance from dead works. So only believers are to take the Lord's Supper. The confessional statement says all ignorant and ungodly persons. Now, when you hear the word ignorant from several hundred years ago, this is not a, a description of your mental capacity. This would be those who have no saving knowledge of the gospel. So, the ignorant and ungodly persons, as they are unfit to enjoy communion with Christ, they don't have communion with Christ, in other words, so are they unworthy of the Lord's table and cannot, without great sin against them, against him, while they remain such, partake of these holy mysteries or be admitted thereunto. So if you are not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, it is imperative on you not to to come to the table. This is why I usually every time give this kind of fencing of the table here. And I explain that there's no judgment on you if you are not a believer to stay in your seat. I, I, I say this as, as a caution or a warning to you. These are only this is only be, to be taken because of the nature of the communion and participation in fellowship here. If you don't have that, but you're taking the signs that that signifies, it is, in fact, dangerous to do. What about when, where, and how often? And the the latter of those is the question I get asked most often. Well, when, I believe that this is, I think if you look through the scriptures, you could see some evidences that this was associated with the gathering of the church on the Lord's Day, on the first day of the week. You see, in Acts chapter 20, the Apostle Paul says that on the first day of the week, uh, it says that we were gathered together because Luke, the author of Acts, um, says that it was with him at the time. This is Acts chapter 20. They are in the city of Troas on Paul's missionary journeys. It says that on the first day of the week, and if you remember from our series on the the Ten Commandments, this is a reference to, to Sunday, the Lord's Day, the first day of the week. So they gathered together as Christians, not on the Sabbath, that would have been the day before. That's the seventh day. This would be the first day of the week, marking the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's when believers got together. And it says, and on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread. So the Lord's Supper seems to be a, a, a regular feature of the gathering together of God's people. Indeed, in the early church, prior um, to the official church buildings, when they would meet in each other's homes, they were called agape feasts or love feasts. They would have this big feast. So think of kind of like a fourth family feast that we have here, a big agape feast. And then at the end, they would celebrate the Lord's Supper as a part of that. And sometimes those feasts got out of hands, which where we're going to see uh, in, in the coming weeks, Lord willing. And so this is in Acts chapter 7, verse 20. And it says, on the first day of the week, we were gathered together to break bed. And then Paul, following this, then talked with them, intending to depart the next day. And he prolonged his speech until midnight. You remember this very familiar passage, poor Eutychus. Because there were many lamps in the upper room and they were all gathered together. And the young man, Eutychus, was sitting in the window and he sank uh, into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer, it says. And being overcome with sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. I think it's so cool that the Bible included a story about a guy who died falling asleep while a guy was listening to a sermon. (laughs) Quite the sense of humor. But then it says, the apostle Paul, he went down, he bent over him, and he took him up in his arms. He says, don't be alarmed, for his life is in him. And then the very next verse uh, says, and when Paul had gone up... Back up to the room, uh, presumably, and had broken bread and eaten. He conversed with them a long while until daybreak, and so, so he. Hey, we're gathering together to break bread, but I got some words to say. And the guy falls asleep dead. He raises him to life again, and he goes, "Okay, we got to go take communion." So that nothing was stopping him from taking the Lord's supper. So it seems it seems that it was whenever they gathered together as the church on the Lord's day, they would take it. So where? Where should this be taken? Well, it should be gathered, taken where the church is gathered. And in this case, they were meeting at home. So it was appropriate for them to, to have it in your homes. But it needs to be in the gathering of the church. Many of you remember kind of in the lockdowns and we had to do the live streaming of things. And there was some discussion on whether we should do the Lord's Supper in the homes. And I was like, uh, not, don't feel so really good about, about doing that because of the nature of what this means when we come together and we take it. So where and when and then how often? There's no real prescription on how often we should take it. Some churches take it monthly. Some churches take it quarterly. Some churches don't take it in their Sunday services at all, but reserve it for a different kind of uh, of service. But for me, I've come under greater conviction Understanding, I don't know. For me, I see this as being such a central part of the gathering together of God's people, of taking this meal that proclaims the death of Christ, that we do it every week. So what is what is it? Why? Why do we do it? What's the meaning? Let me give you seven, actually eight, um, and I'm borrowing many of these from Wayne Grudem, uh, I think it was six or seven of them are from him. Let me give you some of the meaning, the significance. What is, what is meant by taking this together? The first one is this. Christ's death. should be kind of obvious from reading what Jesus' words there. And the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 At the end of giving his instructions on the word of institution here, he says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The Lord's death symbolizes the death of Christ, doesn't it? The breaking of the bread symbolizes the breaking of Christ's body and flesh because Jesus held the bread up and he goes, this is my body broken for you. And when the wine is poured out, or in this case, grape juice, but the wine is poured out, it symbolizes the pouring out of Christ's blood. Indeed, Christ says, this is my blood of the new covenant. So it's a perpetual remembrance and not just just a remembrance for us, it is actually a proclamation to the world of the sacrifice of Christ in his death. You proclaim. When you take it, you're proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. When we take the Lord's Supper together, and if there are unbelievers who come and are part of our service and who remain at their seats, what they're watching is they're watching us proclaiming the gospel. So that's the first one. It's... The death of Christ. And I read something this week, too, that I thought I would share. That when Jesus is, when it's talking about his death, that Jesus, when he says that this bread is my body and this, uh, this wine is my blood. One commentator says this. Johannes Voss says this. And let me read this quote to you. He says that Jesus's words there make it unmistakably clear that the doctrine... Of substitutionary atonement is the basic meaning of the Lord's Supper. And I was like, okay, this is interesting. This is not all the Lord's Supper means, he says, but it is the basic meaning of the sacrament. And without this basic truth, the other things which it represents are meaningless. I'm like, ooh, these are quite interesting and strong terms. So what all of the other meaning and symbol. But if you don't understand the the substitutionary atonement behind all of this, that it's meaningless. So so my interest is piqued. I'm reading more. So he says, therefore, persons who have no knowledge of the doctrine of the substitutionary atonement cannot rightly partake of the Lord's Supper. Similarly, those who under the influence of modern theology have denied or explained away the substitutionary atonement of Christ cannot rightly partake of the Lord's Supper. Strong words, but ones I find myself agreeing with. And for them to go through the motions of it is both blasphemy and meaningless mockery. Those who do not believe that Christ died for our sins in the honest, historic meaning of the words are not Christians and have no right to the Lord's Supper since they reject its central truth. Wow. I wrote, wow, <laughs> rather than this side. And I was like, I, I don't think I'd ever heard that explained that way. That if you do not understand substitutionary atoning work of Christ and that's not the fundamental, like the, the base level understanding of what Christ has done and that this meal signifies, that this meal is the sign that signifies that, then you are not taking it properly. Wow. Strongly worded, but I think it's very likely true, which makes sense. When you think about the backdrop To the Lord's Supper, that Jesus clearly was tying it to, the the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. What is that lamb doing? That lamb is a substitute. The Lord could have said, I could kind of go in there and just figure out my on my own who is Egyptians and who are not. Could he not? But he wanted to drive home into the mind of the Israelites, someone on or in your house or something had to have its blood shed. That little lamb was a substitute, uh, substitute atonement. Remember, think of it. This is lambs not even a year old, remember? I mean, I, I, I said this in my household when the girls were younger, and I think we almost had tears Uh, When we're like, imagine taking in a cute little lamb, like, you know, like a puppy. And then, you know, this horrific thing that everybody has to watch. No wonder the passage says, what is the meaning of the children ask? What is the meaning of this? What is the meaning of this? That that lamb shed its blood to protect us from the judgment of God on Egypt substituting atonement and I would say even penal substitutionary atonement if you ask the lamb he'd go like "Ah, I got penalized so Christ's death second our participation in the benefits of Christ's death remember Jesus commanded this for his disciples today he says take eat this is my body drink of it all of you he says what are the benefits So many benefits, but let me give you the clear one, the forgiveness of our sins. Jesus said, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. As we take the cup that is offered to us, that Christ calls us to take. We are taking the benefits of what he has accomplished for us. We are taking that forgiveness. So Christ's death, the participation of the benefits of Christ's death, then become real to us. And then one of my favorite uh, pictures is of spiritual nourishment. Remember several weeks ago, I talked about the sign and the thing signified. God takes these invisible spiritual realities and then he puts them in concrete, tangible forms. So what's a concrete, tangible form that we have died with Christ and come back with him? That's baptism. What's the concrete and tangible way that the benefits that Christ has accomplished for me and my salvation and the forgiveness of my sin is his broken body and his shed blood and that I take it? So in the way that ordinary food kind of nourishes our physical bodies This this bread of life, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. This bread of life then nourishes us spiritually. It nourishes our souls. In the same way, and I've loved this picture too, in the same way that wine is always kind of a picture of joy and refreshment, when we take the Lord's Supper, we should experience that joy as well. It's often the default position when we come to the table is one of a kind of somberness, Everybody kind of walks over to take it. But and understandably so, given the fact that the cost that has been paid for this, but it's also one of joy. We get to come to the table with joy. This is a celebration of my salvation. On the Passover night, when the the Jews would celebrate this, they're thinking there's an element of the somberness of it. But there's an element of the joy. They had lots of cups of wine, which tended to make it more joyful. Which is why I like the larger portions. I know some of you, let's be honest here. Okay, family time here. So some have said, I just want a little bit. And I'm like, when I, I, that's fine. I totally get it. But I'm like, I want a lot. I want a lot. Number four, the unity of believers, okay? So when we take it, we don't just kind of individually come up here and take it, we're we're taking this together as God's people. We're, We're doing this as one body, Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 16 and 17. The, cuss of, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. The picture that that bread all came from one wafer or one loaf, even though it's all broken up individually and you all come and take your little part, that came from one and the idea is that we've now we are one. Paul says it's that bread was one, so now we are one. It communicates the unity of believers together. So I love this picture of these four, just these four, if we could stop here for a moment. Because our confessional statement says this The supper of the Lord Jesus was instituted by him the same night wherein he was betrayed to be observed in his churches until the end of the word. World for the perpetual remembrance and the showing to all the world the sacrifice of himself and his death, confirmation of the faith of believers in all of the benefits thereof, their spiritual nourishment and growth in him, their further engagement in and to all the duties which they owe him, and to be a bond and pledge of their communion with him and with each other. It's beautiful. A couple of others here, real quickly, five and six. Christ affirms this, his love for me, and Christ affirms that all the blessings of salvation are uh, reserved for me. Keep in mind, when we come to this table, sometimes when I introduce it, I say, brothers and sisters, come to the table. I'm inviting you to the table. When I do that, keep in mind, that's not my invitation. That's Jesus's. He invites his people to his table. So Christ is inviting me. He's affirming his love for me. And Christ is affirming that all of the blessings of salvation are revert, reserved for me. And then lastly, and I want to mention this because it is important, but this is the one that I think often people a lot of gravitate to, the view that a lot of people gravitate to is this is I affirm my faith in Christ. This is, this is true. I think some people only think of this or tend to only think that I'm coming because this is my showing of my affirmation of Christ. But in a way, we, when you step forward to take it and you put your hands out or, or, or take this, the bread that's offered, then your, your faith is strengthened and affirmed by this. This is a means of grace. This is a means whereby the, God's grace is given to us. And so our, our faith is strengthened when we take it. Now, there, I, I have on occasion, some people have said, they, they go, you know what, I don't feel like I want to go up and take the Lord's Supper. I just don't feel like it. Now, to that, I would say, if, if, it's, if it's what we're going to talk about in, in the future, about examining yourself, I get that. But if you don't feel it, like you don't feel like my faith is strong enough to take it or something... I would say you got it backwards. Actually, if you want your faith strengthened, you remind yourself of what this message is communicating to you, and your faith is strengthened in taking it. So I affirm my faith in Christ, and I would say your faith is affirmed in Christ. And then number eight, lastly, this is the one I've added. Anticipation of our eternal home with Christ in his kingdom. It's often thought of as a memorial, remembering back to the work of Christ. But embedded in there is also the anticipation of our eternal home with Christ in his kingdom. The Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians 11 again, says, For as often as you drink the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. His, it's kind of tied into it is the idea of his, his coming back. And as a way, in a way, it's like you take this meal, it's like, a, it's like an appetizer of the heavenly feast that we get in the kingdom. Jesus says, I tell you the truth. The passage we read in Matthew 26, I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of this vine until that day when I drink it anew with you in my father's kingdom. So, oh, so this is kind of like the pre-meal of the bigger meal. Yeah. So there's going to be a like a feast. Revelation 19. Listen to this. John's vision, right? Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out. Okay. (laughs) crying out hallelujah for the Lord, our God, the almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Okay. This is a beautiful picture of the marriage that the union of Jesus and his people is like of uh, the lamb as the groom and the bride. And it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure for the Fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, so just picture, this is a wedding feast. You know, I just had a daughter married a couple of weeks ago, and we had a feast, and it was wonderful. But picture this, but on like a heavenly scale. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. This meal is a picture of the heavenly supper of the lamb. And he said to me, these words are true. So the Lord's supper not only prompts us as believers to look back in remembrance, it also reminds us to look forward in anticipation. Although Jesus died, he did not remain dead, he's out of the grave and he was resurrected and raised to new life and so will we. When we remember when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we're not just thinking about the work that he had done in his death. We're anticipating the hope of his return and the joys of heaven and the future glories of the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, I don't know which one you tend that tends to be in your mind when you come to take this meal together. But let me encourage you to try to think of all of these. Or if one of these is new for you, maybe take, as, as you're preparing to come to the table, maybe you can start to meditate on, on a different one than you tend to think about. So maybe for many of you, you're thinking of, like, my unworthiness to receive it and that Christ is inviting me. Maybe you tend to think that. Maybe you need to think more of, wow, this is the joyous anticipation of the heavenly feast. Or maybe you're just thinking about, like, remembering the death of, of Christ but in taking it, you're like, all of the benefits are coming to me. What, whatever, whatever you tend to think of, I encourage you to use this list to think of something different when you're taking it. To get the full picture of what this means for us. So what better way, having said that, than to for us to come together and take the Lord's Supper? And again, let me... Stress again, if you are not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, I strongly encourage you, stay in your seat. Nobody judges you. Because this is for us believers. Because of what this signifies, what this means, we are you, we are communing with the resurrected Jesus Christ. So we're going to take this meal together and let's do as Jesus did. Let's give thanks. And then invite you to heed the invitation of Christ, our Lord, to come to this table. So let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you. We know that every good and gracious gift comes from you, the Father of lights. That every blessing that we receive comes from your hand. That you have your common grace poured out to all people in many ways. But that you've poured your grace out, especially and savingly to your people. And that as a means of communicating to us now to strengthen our faith, you give us baptism in the Lord's Supper. And so we are grateful that we could come together here in your presence to partake of this because you promise that you are present here and among us, that we are grateful and we gratefully receive this bread and this wine and receive it as a a gracious gift from your hand to strengthen our faith, knowing that you are indeed spiritually present here in it and in and among us. And so we come to the table, examining our hearts, confessing our sins, but coming to the table with joy to receive all of the benefits that you offer us in it. And we pray this in Christ's mighty name and all God's people said, Amen. amen.